0: Welcome back to episode 2 of the Heart Podcast everyone. My name is Omar Romandia and I'm a second-year doctoral student studying education policy at the University of Connecticut. On today's episode, two faculty affiliates, Dr. Stephanie Santos and David Embrick from the Office for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Connecticut will be facilitating the conversation with our guest,
1: Hey everybody, co-hosting today's episode is Dr. David G. Embrick, who holds a joint position as Associate Professor in the Sociology Department and African Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. His research has centered largely on the impact of contemporary forms of racism on people of color. As a faculty affiliate with ODI this academic year, David focuses on faculty and staff support and development.
0: Also helping facilitate today's conversation is Dr. Stephanie Santos, who is an assistant professor in residence and associate director of the Vergnano Institute for Inclusion in the School of Engineering at the University of Connecticut. Her previous work focused on cartilage biomechanics, and she is shifting lenses to engineering leadership, equity, and microaggressions. As a faculty affiliate with ODI, Stephanie's work also focuses on faculty and staff support development in addition to community outreach, development, and advocacy.
2: Our guest today is none other than Dr. Monica Cox. Monica is a disruptor, trailblazer, change agent, and leader who believes in living an authentic life, even if it makes people uncomfortable. She grew up an only child in rural Southeast Alabama, where she was raised by her educator parents to persist in the face of personal and professional adversity. As a coach, she guides clients in areas of career development, business strategy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. A distinguished professor and entrepreneur, Dr. Cox's inquisitive nature contributes to her passion for educating others and sharing what she has learned via her experiences. Thank you for joining us today.
0: We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Paw Gusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations.
1: All right. All right. I'm going to jump into our first question. And our first question is, what is a racist institution or organization? And maybe on the flip side of that, what does an anti-racist institutional organization look like?
3: Um. um well, I think a racist institution is something like I want to frame this within the context of equity. So an organization that does not allow every member of that organization to succeed um in an equal measure um to me, it's kind of a, a racist organization. it comes back to policy and I always connect to that. I say that infrastructure is definitely there anytime you're in an organization, but the implementation of those policies and who benefits from those policies, um, that connects back to race a racist organization as well, as, particularly as it relates back to, Um, you know, people of color. And so I would say that many organizations don't have the accountability that's in place. And as a result, that promotes um, and encourages you know, just um, really increases the racism that, that you see and that you feel in an organization. Um, so an anti-racist organization, whew, there's a lot, There are there's like a laundry list of things, but I want to kind of keep it high level. I think that when you think about an anti-racist institution, it comes back to um, Black and engineering's call to action. I'm a part of that organization. You can go to blackandengineering.org to look at more information, but we talk about accountability. We talk about personal accountability. We talk about um, institutional accountability, commitment to resources, looking at the historical roots of issues in an organization and acknowledging that those issues are harming people. All of that comes back to what an anti-racist institution looks like. And so it's not just putting the onus on um, people of color to do the work, but it's saying that everyone has a responsibility to address the issues that are happening, and it will take the entire community to ensure that um, anti-racism is a principle and it's practiced in the organization.
2: I wonder if, if, um, if you have, like, if you could um, pinpoint a model like what would a what would what would a what would that institution like? Is there an institution out there? And I and I say this realistically, thinking about uh, most of these universities as white universities, right? White supremacists, white white uh, universities and colleges, um, you know. And so so when I think of it, and I, I may be completely wrong, and I know you want the spell I'm thinking of like maybe universities that they're not perfect, but maybe they they do a little bit more. Would be maybe the HBCUs. Um, you know or 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 um you know uh, sort of indigenous uh centered uh colleges and universities but 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 what's your what's your take on that i mean are you know is there really such a thing as as an anti-racist organization
3: well i often talk about the nested nature of how we live like we do not um organizations do not operate in a vacuum so even if you have uh, minority serving institutions or places that embody anti-racist principles, they're still within the infrastructure of the larger of the country, of the state, of the country, of everything else. And so um, many institutions, you know, are dependent upon funding and upon the policies, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, that determine who gets financial aid, who doesn't, um, you know, who gets the research, who doesn't get the research, like everything is connected to that. And I think that that's kind of something like I said that that hinders um, the true anti-racist um, embodiment at, at, at minority serving institutions. But I would say, I have not experienced the ideal anti-racist um, positions or spaces um, you know, at predominantly white institutions. I think that there's a mindset, there's a shift that has to happen when you think about what anti-racism is. Because many people look at um, the fact that, like, people think that you cannot have diversity and excellence in the same vein, and that is what also um, impedes certain progress from happening. You know, there's also a fear of losing power. I talk about that all the time. You know, you've had... Um, the historical roots of who's in power, but when you start bringing in other people, when you start having conversations, you see what's happening around the country. It makes people uncomfortable. And we don't really get to the heart of um, the fear and what people think is ultimately going to happen if we move toward anti-racism, but it's there. It's there in every promotion and tenure meeting, um, You know, every appointment of people in positions of power it's just that invisible um elephant, you know, in the room that we don't talk about. So that's why I say a lot of people are having conversations. So mm, I don't really see a lot of places that that really embody full anti-racism. Can I clarify that? Even yeah. though i talking about full anti-racism, I keep, I don't know. For some reason that is something I keep saying because I feel like, you know, sometimes we think all or none. And I think that there are some things that people will um embrace and some things they don't. And so I say, like, mm, you're almost there, but yeah. it's really so mm.
2: Yeah, sometimes we settle. We settle too soon a little bit. Um, I got I got to ask you this, because you brought in, you brought in, you brought in terms like diversity and I don't know if I heard inclusion, but it was almost there. And I, I, I wonder, I, well, what do you think about these terms? The, for me, yeah. these terms, like diversity and inclusion, I know you do a lot with this. So, so, you know, the, to me, these are feel good terms, right? They're ambiguous. Um, and they're often broad, so, you know, you have a diversity office, uh, you know, in a university or college and they're expected to do everything and that umbrella is large. Right? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss saying, you know, the, the unimportance of X, Y, and Z. But they're expected to do everything that falls under this ambiguous umbrella with very few resources and everybody, you know, people have their pet projects and they have the positions. Um, and so, you know, um, I think what gets left out for me, um. Uh, especially universities, white universities that have long histories of racial oppression on campus is that uh, issues of racism get dismissed or minimized right under this large umbrella, because we need to be, we need to make everybody happy. And so it ends up minimizing. it. so, so kind of what do you think about these terms These ambiguous terms?
3: Yeah, so I have a podcast called stop playing diversity and I actually um, devoted an episode to defining all these terms um, because so many people don't know what they are and so. I'll just throw like the terms that that I talk about and the things I hear all the time. So diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, um, justice, access, um, you know, it's all these things, JEDI, EDI, EDEI, you know, it's just everything. And you see it changing over time. And I think, (laughs) um, I also talk about power, and I feel that many places use, I say diversity, equity, and inclusion or DEI to, they use it as a Band-Aid. It's kind of like, oh, people are complaining, but let me put this Band-Aid on and it's gonna shut them up. But if you look at, really I'll say it's like a cancer, you can't cure cancer with the Band-Aid, you know, and and people want to make diversity officers and people who work in the space, the surgeon, the oncologist, so to speak, but they aren't given permission and access to actually eradicate the cancer that is there. And it's just very performative. It is, um, it feels good. It sounds good. But if you really do this work well, it's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to shift. It's going to change. And I know in looking at the pandemic and how people responded so quickly to shutdowns and, you know, let's do remote work and everybody has a laptop. (laughs) It's like, you know what? (laughs) Let's get a vaccine and, you know, whatever a year because we can't have any more people dying. It's like y'all did some miraculous stuff in less than two years and. We are still talking about voting rights and, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. Blah blah blah. blah. blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What y'all want to do? And and so this is my aha. You know, like conspiracy theory. It's like people do what they want to do. That's what we say sound. People do what they want to do, and you know what? People want to appease folks so that they shut up just enough, and then people can continue to do what they want to do. Because, I think really doing this work and understanding this work just requires, like I said, a shift. A shift that makes everybody uncomfortable and it's almost like tearing things down to build up again, because you look at the infrastructure of everything. It was not built with diversity in mind. It was not built with inclusion in mind. It was not built with belonging in line. And so you're trying to add patches to spaces where the foundation and the roots are extremely deep. So now it's just window dressing. You know, it's just yeah. a cloak, you know, yeah, something yeah. to just put on something, but not the roots. So uproot it, get your seeds, water it, build it together. So yeah. but people don't wanna do that. So <laughs> that goes back to your previous question of, do we really have anti-racist institutions up? Oh, nope. Has anyone uprooted, uh, turned over, done a complete different, like completely different restructuring, evaluation of their mission, vision, changing board of trustees? I don't see anybody doing that.
2: Right. Right. I love it. I love it. I, I, um, I always say, I, I, I tell people I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, the term inclusion, and they're like, what? And, and it sounds weird, right? But it, it, But what I really mean is I'm not, I'm not a fan of the way you use inclusion, right? You can't just drop. Drop top down inclusion on on a place and say, we're going to be inclusive without addressing uh, existing inequalities. Mm -hmm. The the racial fissures, right? You got to address the issues and then you could talk about inclusion. At least that's not my take on it.
3: Absolutely. And you know, we're yeah. also looking at some cultural things too. Like when we talk about conflict, the work that's actually that needs to be done, um, you know, a lot of people are not comfortable with conflict. Like you even can look at, you know, whether we call it Eastern, Western, capitalist, whatever you call it, how people operate traditionally in the US, we we're Somewhat conflict diverse, depending on where you are. And so to actually talk about race, like, you know, we've always been taught you don't talk about race, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, but those are the things that are tearing us down. So when are we going to talk about it? Because it's messing everybody up.
1: For sure, for sure. And you mentioned a lot about roots and acknowledging the harm that they cause people. So I'm curious with respect to teaching, what do you think are the roots of, or the history of anti-racist teaching? And it could be in whatever context you think about, it could be in engineering or more broadly in education. What do you think?
3: It's it's a lot. Um, you know, it comes back to, like, we really want to focus on, I guess I'm bringing it back to the inclusion to the diversity piece, but when we think about i think anti-racist teaching and i wanted to pull something up um you know we're talking about biases and in engineering you know there are i mean it's a very male dominated um field and so i think people initially focused on including women in engineering and then over time we've talked about more underrepresented minorities in engineering, but um, because I feel like a lot of the anti-racist teaching has come from funding. Like when you think about NSF, when you think about the initiatives that are out there, I feel that government agencies and policy spaces have kind of um, framed what anti-racism looks like in engineering and people have been driven to connect to the money. But just to do it on its own, I don't, I don't see people who proactively in my field are just saying, this is what we want to do unless it's connected back to, um, like, women in engineering programs or minority engineering programs as well.
2: So does that does that mean that um, I'm just thinking here, like, it's, it's politics, right? Partially politics, right? Or maybe it's always politics. But does that mean that, like, I mean, we should, we should, um. Not expect these things to become institutionalized once, 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 um, once we've gotten something started, because because regime changes, whether they're you know at the uh, at the federal government level, right? We've seen with the with the changes of the president, all of a sudden you get um, different kinds of support or lack of support, or 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 you get sort of you know <laughs> increased hostility to uh, yeah. to some of the things that we're we're trying to achieve, uh, at least. You know, these, these small moments uh, moments of progression Um, so should we should we be worried or or how should we like, I don't like, how do we, what do we do?
3: Yeah, you know what (laughs) you're right, like at the drop of a hat. Things can shift and I think that organizations have to focus on sustainability within their programs and within their infrastructure. regardless of what funding is out there. And so that takes strong leadership. Um, One other thing I wanna add when I talk about um, anti-racist teaching and what's kind of influenced it, I think it's the people who are in the classroom. Like people are complaining, you know, students will talk trash on social media sites, on Reddit on whatever, if stuff is rough. And I think it does come back, um, you know, to like you said, um, David, about the politics because people don't want to look bad too. I mean, I hate to make it just sound so shallow, but I mean, if you look at any institution now and how quickly um, bad news spreads when something goes wrong, you know, in a classroom or for people of color or whatever. Um, you know, institutions try to put that put that aid on it. And I feel that that also Influences of so social activism, social justice, mm-hmm. so, 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 social awareness pushes anti-racist practice. That's what happened in 2020. All of a sudden, everybody's like, we have a statement. We want to do this. We want to do that. It was, it was, it was society. It was the fear of being left out. It was the fear of looking racist <laughs> that mm-hmm. actually moved anti-racism forward. And, hmm, you know, ugh, it's it's rough. It's It sounds dirty. You know what I mean? It feels dirty to me. And I, I don't, we could talk about that if you want, but, you know, it's kind of like people just putting on a show as people say, yeah. the pony show, like, oh, my gosh, we care. And it's like, you didn't care about me 2 years ago. What are you talking about? Do you really care? Do you care about me in 2022?
2: I did want to I did want to ask you this. I don't want to go. I don't want to go backwards, but I do want to kind of revisit some of the earlier things that we, we, we discussed because. Um, uh I think you made it sort of clear like this this we're, we we got to constantly be we, you know we got to we got to constantly be pushing to make sure that, that things don't get sort of we don't get that white lash right um but 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 I'm curious like you know in in the ways that I ask you how you feel about or how you think about diversity inclusion I'm wondering like um a lot of your work is on sort of anti-racism how do you feel about those terms anti-racist and anti-racism right um because I also that like you know uh, you know uh, at least I guess academically for better or worse Um, You know, we, we could see that those terms have also maybe become co-opted because right now you've got, you know, there's a pushback on critical race theory, pushback on anti racist teachings. But then you have this kind of other movement from the right and then, you know, moderate whites as well that are saying, well, you know, um, you know, uh, you're racist. So, anti-racism is, is, is really not being against white people, that kind of stuff, right? And so, you know, what, like, hey, you know, I mean, right, we have to deal with that, right? And so, so I'm just kind of like, you know. Uh, where these terms have at one time, you know, I think, um, you know, we can really think of them really critically. Uh, I'm wondering, like, what do we, how do we sort of think about them, and how do we contend with this kind of cooptation or potential cooptation yeah. today?
3: Yeah, yeah, man, there's so many points here, so we're gonna have to break this down. <laughs> I think, first of all, people want to label stuff. We're labelers. You know, in, in the US, we love labeling. Like, what are you? Are you black? Are you white? Are you this? Are you whatever? Like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like we love being able to put our hands on what something is. And I feel that, you know, it's important to have terms because it it does somehow give the validity that's necessary for people to at least listen because that's that's the currency, that's the code, that's the um the construct, so to speak, you know, I feel in America. But I also talk about the action Mm. and I feel that, you know, there's, it's so easy to just say something. You could be like, oh, this is a bird. This is a whatever, but it's not just because it has wings. And, um, you know, I feel that. Anti-racism, people never fully understand understand anything. So if you really think about it, like there are so many issues. When you think about critical race theory and the confusion, mm-hmm. there is no one definition that encompasses everything about it. And then depending on who talks about it, they're not going to get it. They're not going to be able to apply it. So it's the theory, it's the practice for everything too. And so I don't use anti-racist that much. I feel that I am kind of on the application side a lot where I'm like, this is the thing that it is. Like, we need to have a conversation. If that's called um, commercialization theory, that could be what it is. But I'm just saying, like, have a conversation. We are lying. And so even thinking about, like, my Stop Playing Diversity brand, that is just my way of not calling it – I could say it's performative allyship, but I don't. I just say Stop Playing Diversity because it gets to – the heart of mm. you know literally what I mean when I'm saying stop playing diversity. Like you're being yeah, you are being performative. So hopefully I answered that. I went all over the place, but
2: oh no, it's good. It's good. We wanted I, uh, we should probably get into teaching, right? Pedagogy, right, Stephanie? Oh no. You brought it up. You were like it's in the classroom.
1: Yeah, and maybe um, touching on, so you mentioned a lot, you talked about feedback from students and how they can post it on Reddit and you have that kind of immediate feedback, but what about kind of the more long term or permanent feedback? So, for example, call it uh, student evaluations of teaching. Is there ways to bring in that? Well, let me rewind. How does racism or anti-racism play in the student evaluations of teaching? And then is there a way to use that in order to evaluate? and hold people accountable for actual anti-racist teaching.
3: Yeah, so um, most people know about the literature that talks about the biases against people of color, women, et cetera, when it comes to student evaluations of teaching, particularly in STEM, and you have to have multiple ways to evaluate people. So, when you're talking about anti-racism, it's it's looking at the impact that people have. So, I'm going to use this as an example, um, like the podcast. Um, So, this is a form of teaching. So, Goldie and um, and Walker have a book where they're talking about stewardship and stewardship like they're talking about transformation and what it means to be a scholar and it's they define it as teaching in the broadest sense of the word and so when you're looking at a lot of people of color, people are on social media, people are doing things in different ways, like podcasts and communicating and sharing information in different ways. And so this is an example of what anti-racist teaching looks like because it's, it's communicating in a different way. It's using my way of communicating to share information. And I think the big issue, and I see parallels, I always come back to the faculty side or what I've seen from my experience as a former department chair with what I see in the classroom, Evaluation is evaluation. And when you look at the academy, whether you're being evaluated um, as a faculty or whether you're being evaluated as a teacher, it comes down to the interpretation of the person who is evaluating you. And we often don't have enough objective measures that look at how someone should be evaluated. So I always tell people, when you're looking at teaching, we often don't focus on the instruction. We're focusing on the instructor. And when you're looking at the instructor, that comes back to the biases. Have you ever had a person who looks like that person in your classroom? Have you ever, do you like the way that person speaks? Like people talk about, you know, we're dressing. I'm wearing, I have my natural hair today. Oh, her hair. You're so distracted by my doggone hair that you can't hear what I'm saying. It's that type of stuff that you know, that's hitting people in the evaluations. And so we need to find a way to get all that mess out. And even if you have to have some pre-evaluation, I've always said this, so that you're looking to see of the students in the classroom, 80% of these students have never had a black woman engineering professor, or these students come from a particular area where they wouldn't be exposed to anyone who looks like me. So there are the stereotypes. And so many people would say that's making an excuse, but I say that it's leveling the playing field. It's actually saying, okay, you look at this, first of all, look at the people who are saying this, and now look at me, look at my look at my scholarship, look at what I've done, look at the pedagogy, look at the things that I've implemented, look at the grades, look at the outcomes, look at those objective measures coupled with or framed within the context of Um, the experiences of the people who are now saying this about me. We don't do that, but that comes back to accountability. That comes back to actually saying that there's more to a story than a one-size-fits-all model of evaluation. It comes back to saying we understand that these organizations were not Um, created equally for everyone to succeed. And so these are the things that we are doing as an organization to ensure that this person can be evaluated properly and succeed as they need to succeed. That was a lot. Did that answer your questions?
2: Yeah. Now, Stephanie told me, you describe yourself as a disruptor. She was like, like Dr. Cox is a disruptor. So. You know, um, And I was like, okay. Now we talking. Now we talking. Now we getting. Now we getting. Now we getting down. Um, and so, so what does that mean? What does it mean to you personally, um, and 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 professionally for you to be uh, for you to be a disruptor, um, especially navigating historically white colleges and universities. And and I'm assuming if you're a disruptor, you ain't just it's 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 a way of life, right? So you disrupting and as as teaching pedagogy. I'd be curious, um, uh, like how does that how does that look? I love I love the idea. I love the idea and as, as as a as a teaching practice. So I'm kinda of, what does that what does that mean to you?
3: Yeah, um there's so many thoughts that come up, but when I think about taxation, we know about the taxation that that comes. Um, I'll say for for, it would come for me as a black woman and so when I'm coming in I have to educate everyone about everything and so I you know at first it used to annoy me because it's like why do I have to tell everybody about black hair and tell people that i you know this is what it's like to grow up this way or this is what this term means or this is who Kendrick Lamar is or Mary J or why do I have to explain the Super Bowl to you like this is confusing this is this was rough that shouldn't be my job but you know I feel that 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 is something that I've actually embraced and so the disruption also comes back to say this is another This is another aspect of society. This is another aspect of culture. And I'm not going to shy away from the fact that this is my culture or this is something that's important to me when I give you references, when I give you examples, when I speak, when I can, you know, when I do any of these things, I'm bringing that. And so that may seem very radical, but there are a lot of people who code switch. There are a lot of people who assimilate and they will not bring any aspect of their culture into an environment because they're afraid of being penalized and sometimes rightfully so. And so um, it is risk taking. You know what is so funny? This is going to sound weird to your listeners. But it is a risk every day for me to be who I was created to be in the space where I am. Risk every day. Because of interpretation. Because of ignorance. uh, Because of, you know, people who just don't sometimes want me there. and the thing that i've done over the past almost 20 years of my academic career is show up anyway be out be that one um not to just you know rock the boat but if there's something that needs to be said i'm known for being the one who's going to say it um you know if there are biases against you know asian faculty i've spoken up about that like hey you know when i look at how people are talking about that's inappropriate like you shouldn't talk about you know someone's um they speak well to be from some country what is that that's 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 wrong and i feel that disrupting is knowing that you have not been put in a position to just sit there and get a paycheck there is, a, there is courage that comes from disrupting. There is courage that comes from being promoted, tenured, um, a full professor. I'm now a distinguished professor of engineering, and I know that when I am in that room, I speak for people who will never enter the room. I am the one, this is my one shot to make sure that I'm putting a dent In a system, I'm putting a dent in the structure, and I'm going to make sure that impact is there. It's going to be something that lasts. And I think that, I mean, I'm getting off, but so many people who are the first and the only like, yes, you take the blows, but there's this mantle. There's this way of working and living and being that Everyone does not take on, but they should take on because that's how we're going to make sure that 20, 30, 40 years from now, things are different. When you don't see change, it's sometimes because the people who are in that position of power didn't speak up in that meeting. They were too afraid and something didn't happen that was supposed to happen. And so if you, so getting back to your original question, someone said, I was like Harriet Tubman and I agree because I feel that in this one life that I'm given, I'm going to go big or I'm going to go home. Like, people are going to know, you know, if Monica Cox was in this institution, you're going to hear from 20 people who are like, you know what? She said this. She did this. She tore this down. She questioned that policy. You know, she did this. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I want my impact to be felt not out of vanity, but out of good stewardship and um, understanding the role, the mission.
2: I love it. I love it. What's the um speaking about anti-racist teaching, if you had to give academics one piece of advice, just one, right? I could um you give I mean you're already giving them tons of advice, but yeah. one piece of advice about anti-racist teaching, what would that be?
3: It seems very easy in my opinion, but I think bringing in perspectives that represent everyone. Mm. Um, You know, you have to push yourself in teaching to get out of what you know, and you have to, and this kind of comes back to policy and what I know about policy as well. When you're looking at policy or even analyzing it, you're looking at different stakeholders. You're seeing like how, um, like if you're in a classroom and you're talking about like an engineering project problem, then you're thinking about the people in the community. You're thinking about someone who maybe has never been exposed to this problem. You're thinking about the people with the money. You're thinking about, um, you know, all of the people, the people who love it, the people who won't, the ones who... Um, are going to lose their livelihood because of it. I mean, it is, there's this empathy and this awareness that you have to have in your work and. It takes extra work as a, as a teacher, as an instructor, but. It helps your students to understand that the world is bigger than they are and it's more than a number on a page. Mm -hmm. It's more than a computer simulation like you're talking about real individuals who are going to be impacted by what you do. And there's just this this awareness. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, from the minute a someone enters an institution to the minute that they leave, they need to be uncomfortable. And anti-racist teaching is not that you're making people uncomfortable just to do it, but you're making them uncomfortable because they're now aware of something that is bigger than they are. They're always encouraged to think beyond What's on the printed page? Um, You know, if I could quickly give an example, you think about the pandemic and I feel like this is such an amazing lesson in anti-racism where we're talking about like traditionally people would have just said, I'm going to design something, um, you know, airline. Let me just give an example. So, you know, if you think about um, logistics or Mm. increasing transportation, you know, for airlines, that's something. But with the pandemic, people didn't want to fly. You know, people didn't feel safe. And so what is that about? Like, what does that mean for the people who work for the airlines? But also, what does it mean for the consumers, for the people who need to get to sick parents, for the people who, um, you know, have business, but then they're endangering other people's lives by traveling? Like, anti-racism is really Understanding the impact, and it's also even taking it. I'm gonna go into healthcare. You know, thinking about people at the beginning of the pandemic, we talked a lot about brown and black people who, um, you know, were the, the the they were more likely to, um, you know, to die or to really feel the impact of um, not having great healthcare because there was so much unknown about COVID. And so, how do you factor? that into the decisions that you're making. How do you factor in economics and how do you factor in the community and the in and, and so many other aspects? And so I guess I'm just trying to say moving forward with anti-racism teaching, I hope that COVID, the pandemic, and everything has taught us that we have to expand our views of teaching and communicating and thinking about the impact of our school, schools and lessons on everyone. You know, what's going to happen five years down the road because of a decision that we make in a classroom today? How do we create engineers, in my case, who, who are aware and are sensitive to what's up and I think one final thing I'll say about that, and I do have another podcast episode, I feel like I have podcast episodes for everything, but I was talking about diversity lessons learned from the pandemic. And I think that it comes back to also the grace, like right now we're giving people grace because they have kids at home. We're giving people grace because they don't want to work in the workplace anymore physically or they can't. And so let's continue that. I think that anti-racism also has that place of meeting people where they are and assuming um, good intent for why they want and need to operate the way they need to operate. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah. We giving we giving grace to people because they white middle class. We we never gave, we never gave grace to, to working class folks that had two or three jobs before. We didn't care, right? We were like, you should be at the teacher parent
3: conference. And work yourself to death. Do you realize that too? It's another thing of like, people are not given permission to pause. Mm-hmm. And for a quick minute, it's like, you know what, don't come to this job because Mm -hmm. other people are scared of dying too. you know, it was like, it was like an equalizer in a weird way where it's like, everybody has to calm their behinds down because we don't have a vaccine. And so what are you going
1: to do? And I feel like that manifests a lot in the students. I get emails of like, it's a page long of them describing why they're late on this assignment. And I'm like. OK, <laughs> you do not need to describe a page along like I'm giving you grace, like if you need Absolutely. time, take your time. Right. And that kind of goes back to the to the teaching as well. Like when you're leading a classroom, who do they see you to be? It's so many things they can see you as being a person they can approach or tell their problems to or whatever it is. And to your point earlier about talking about taxes, like women of color, they can get that too. And particularly with women of color and and speaking with students who might identify with them in different ways or other students of color, like they're coming to you, they're talking to you about what you need or what, what they need. And so there's so much there. But to your point, Monica, about the grace in the classroom, like even that's changed the conversations of what the students are asking for, what they need. And in on the flip of that, like what we need when we're in front of the space has all changed too. Absolutely.
3: And I wanna talk about a little bit about the vulnerability. Um, something that I did, you know, in my class, With my students was um like I have a three-year-old and there were a lot of things that were going on with my child at the time and of course he still is not vaccinated and um you know if there was if I had to take a call from like the daycare for something because they were shutting down or whatever they were doing I was like you know excuse me I'm telling you this up front this is who I am but you know as a mom like I'm owning that and that's another example where I feel like the pandemic has taught me to not apologize for my identity. And so, you know, part of anti-racist teaching too is allowing people to be their whole selves, understanding that they are professional, but they also have to care for people and they have to care for themselves. Like we haven't talked about mental health at all on this segment, but I feel that that's, that's kind of an understood thing too. Like when you're talking about good anti-racism, Teaching and efforts, it is awareness of where people are. Given that they're all going through different things, and making sure that they come out on the other side whole. Like, I hope that organizations now understand the content's going to get taught, but are you going to have people who are able to um, be whole at the end of the experience?
1: I think that's a really good point, and to to what you're saying, I don't know if you, if institutions like un- at least universities are there and even supporting students mental mm-hmm. health needs. And I know this is a big issue across the country, but I know students who will look for an appointment and it'll take weeks for them to get mm-hmm. one, or they'll look for an appointment and they don't see a therapist or a psychologist who looks like them or who they feel will understand them. So there's a lot there as well to your point and be able to, being able to support someone to be their whole selves or to be their best selves, whatever that means to them.
3: Yeah, and that comes back to, like, with anti racism teaching, it comes back to the resources. We're also talking about that. So you have to have mm-hmm. the resources to do the work when you're talking about this. And if that's something that's necessary, then how do you put your institutional resources in place to make sure that people are supported?
2: We're I think we're I'm curious. We're all curious. Um, how do your students respond to your this approach to teaching like how have your students responded and and I'm particular think we're particularly interested in um the students that challenge you the student disruptors right who challenge anti-racist teaching pedagogies like how do you respond how like how has that been <clears throat>
1: Goodness.
3: So, you know, I've been an administrator for a while. I was an administrator for a while. And so I've I've primarily taught graduate students who've been extremely respectful um, for the past couple of years, uh, particularly, you know, since the anti-racist mm-hmm. um, term has come out. So I'm going to go back a little bit because I feel like I've always demonstrated these principles in my classroom. Um, But when I taught first year engineering, um, there were... I would teach like 400 students at a time, and then it went down to 120 students at the time. And, you know, I would really share insights and perspectives and a lot of my students didn't get it. So maybe they're like 18 or 19 years old. And, you know, I got dinged on course evaluations because it's like, you know, what is she talking about? But I happened to meet a student years later, where ironically at the Indy 500 and he remembered me as his teacher, and he said that he had told his mom about me. And he said, You were really hard, and I was intimidated by you, but now I see what you were talking about. So that even comes back to course evaluations, too. Like, you know, when you're looking at anti racism teaching, it's not, you know, we, we, course evaluations are snapshots. It's a semester, but we don't have that follow up two, three, four, five years to be like, oh, that's what she was talking about. Oh, she was an amazing teacher. And so it's that part that also. Hinders, um, you know, people from succeeding, you know, in teaching, particularly, um, you know, I say people of color women. But yeah, that was an example. The pushback is real in the moment. And you just can't evaluate it in the moment. So you hope that you have a way to explain it on your documents. And I feel like that's another thing too. How do you write this down? How do you talk Mm -hmm. about your impact when people don't even understand what it is that you're talking about? Because they only care about the numbers,
2: right? Right? See you nicer to me. I've been like you gave me. You, you remember giving me that bad evaluation. Now you're getting it three years later. I, I want some pie or something. You you gonna put something in mind? Like I
3: think that boy had a beer in his hand or something. That was not <laughs> the time of the place. So it was like, hey, okay, bye. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was partying. Oh.
1: but to your point, you're you're mentioning a lot of gold and a lot of gems for things that are. It sounds like suggestions for institutional change. Like you're you're mentioning, how do you reflect the right upon this impact? Because I don't know if that's a process in the student evaluation of teaching. And to your point, it's a snapshot. So, how can you follow that longitudinal or long term impact or what even can be done? So, it sounds like you're suggesting a lot for change.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think, unfortunately, and this is where the problem comes in, it comes, the onus is back on the person again, the one who needs the data, the one who needs to prove that they have made this impact. And I think that, you know, ins- you're right, institutions need to. Th- think out of the box about what impact looks like, but they need to give people opportunities to define that. And, you know, I'll give you one example. It's not explicitly related to like um, undergrad teaching, but I feel like using that definition of transformation is there. So I was tweeting one day and I had like a viral tweet and it went, I mean, I think it had 4 million impressions or something like that. So there were people in industries like the fashion industry, et cetera. And they were like, oh my gosh, you know, what you're saying is really important. And I even created like a TikTok video like yesterday that impacted a lot of people. And people were like, oh, I'm 40 years old and I didn't even know this. So, how am I going to take that and put it into something? that says this is the impact that I'm having, not just in my institution, but outside. And I feel like that's something that we also need to say Um, when we're talking about teaching. A lot of our teaching is for people who will never enter our classrooms, and that is really important to us. And so it's broadening the definition of teaching. I feel like that's also an example of anti-racist practices, you know, where you're saying we understand that this person cares about the community. We understand that this person cares about educating individuals beyond these ivory, the the ivory tower. So how do we somehow bring that into their portfolio? So you're right. That's something the institution can do. But then it's the evaluation. I'm sorry, I'm going off. Because once you write it down, everybody's like, well, no, I don't have a social media account. I don't get that. Dang. And it's like, okay, so we're back. We're back at square one because this person <laughs> just doesn't care. And is just dismissing it. And so how do you then define it? And it's just this endless circle of just frustration. I want to be positive, but I couldn't be positive on that one.
2: Oh yeah, but but there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot to be positive about. You're 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 unique uh, in that you are uh, you're what we uh, we might label you like a super academic, like a super academic. You have your own business, mm-hmm. and you're doing administration work, and you're and you and you an academic scholar teacher. Um, you developed your own guide for stop playing diversity that you mentioned previously. Can you can you speak more on the inspiration and the methods and approaches you recommend for action?
3: Yes. Um, let me. Let me back up for a little and then I'm going to talk about the recommendations for action. Um, I think that, so, stop playing diversity happened because there was never anything that helped me out. And I got confused because I've seen, you know, multi million dollar grants. I've seen so many things, and everyone talks about women of color. At least that's my area. And I'm like, why am I still getting my head beat in? Why am I still struggling? I'm confused. Like if we have like all these offices and all these spaces, I still don't, I I don't get it. Is it that people don't know what's up because they're writing papers about it. They're putting millions of dollars into it, but why is nothing helping me? So I just stepped back and Stop Playing Diversity is this thing of like, what did I wish that I had? Because this is how I need a system to operate So, I am successful and when I think about. Like, I have, I have this 1 product that I've created 50 ways to stop playing diversity and I've talked about a couple of them in some videos. But 1 of the ones that stands out to me is, um, well, 2 of them. 1 is that an organization needs to acknowledge the harm that it has done. To people, and that is harsh, like when you think about it, that's, that's getting back to accountability again. And there are people in an organization who may fear about their livelihood or something like that. But to move forward with this work, you have to say, I, I messed up, but because of legal things, because of the way that the structure is in an organization, people don't do it. But we're not going to be able to move forward until you actually identify what happened to get us to where we are. The second thing I talked about, um, it does come back to the root, the root of the oppression. And, you know, how, why is it? So let's use, um, you know, teaching as an example. So in an institution, why is it that the women of color Always get dinged on their student evaluations for things that are not relevant. So, yes, there's literature that talks about it. Okay. Thank you. Somebody got their tier 1 journal. But at our institution in our space with the people who we say that we care about, why is this happening? And I think. This is a completely different level of leadership when you have to address those issues, because you know what? Everybody's not going to like you. You may not be reappointed to a position. You may be like blacklisted or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's what leadership is. It's the role. And so it gets back to also your motivation. And when I did stop playing diversity, like real talk, I always say hashtag real talk on the things that I do. I say when I was 19 years old, I said I wanted to be a university president. And over time, I kept hearing so many bad stories that I had to decide if I was going to continue to ascend, was my career going to be about ascending to a presidency and being a face, or was my career going to be about empowering people who could never speak up for themselves and I, I promise you it's almost like you could see this this road where I had to try and say like what is it what is more important to me title and money or my calling and the thing that I need to do and um, I feel that I, I often tell people this one day I got a direct message from a young lady and I'm saying this forever changed me but you know I tweet all the time and she said that she had she thought of taking her life she was a graduate student. Um, like I said, in engineering, and she said, my words kept her moving and I had to step back for a minute. I was like, who is this? Like, I promise you, I can't tell her tell you her name right now or anything. But it was the fact that someone sent me a message in the midst of whatever pain they were going through to say something you said kept me going. And I kept hearing messages about people asking me, how do you build as you battle? Or you ha- you say the words that are in me, but I don't know how to say, and I'm telling y'all, these are strangers, strangers. And I said, there is something out there that is bigger than this institution. It is bigger than the walls of this institution, and I cannot turn my back on what I am seeing. Um, in the world, so that's where I am right now. When you talk about it, the recommendation, listen to the hurting people. They want to talk. There are so many hurting people out there. Like, I am not a counselor. I am not a therapist, but some people are like, you know what? Hmm. I'm struggling. Come on institutions. Is What are you there for? What do you do? You out here hurting people and that's. That's what I'm focused on trying to get to wholeness.
2: Put, put a plug in for um, Stop Playing Diversity. How can our listeners get a hold of it?
3: Um, so it is on. So it's called Stop Playing Diversity with Dr. Monica Cox, but it is on all platforms. Um, uh, what is it on? So, you know, like Apple, Apple Spotify, etc. You can also go to my website, DrMonicaCox.com podcast, and it comes up every Monday. I have episodes drop, and they're just nuggets. So like five, five to ten minute nuggets. If you want, if you just like me talking <laughs> you know about something <laughs> it's me talking and it's really and i'll and i'll tell you for example this week's episode was about being better and not bitter because when you do this work it is easy to be angry with people and you know one of the things i said was you know i i questioned myself because i'm like do i want other people to get hurt is that why i'm doing this because you know you're like well why didn't they go through it why am i getting starved well because you want the people after you to not have to go through that and so that type of stuff just common sense can we have a conversation and talk about stuff
1: living living monica thank you thank you thank you you continue to amaze i remember when i sat in your office almost two three years ago now and you haven't changed well actually you've changed and you've come in stronger with a force so you keep getting stronger and i love to see it thank Thank you i appreciate that
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Monica Cox, for reminding us about the personal and institutional accountability needed in order to practice anti-racist teaching, in which we identify the historical roots of the societal problems we're seeing today. Anti-racism is a principle, and it's important to shift our mindset to also think about excellence when we think about diversity, as they don't exist in silos. Lastly, we appreciate you reminding us to acquire perspectives that can bring people together to engage in this important work.
1: As always,
3: we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.